Well, hi everybody on this Monday. Hi there. Chilly, rainy. Wet. Wet, yeah. It's, miserable. It, it's pretty, you know, pretty nasty out there. I was out earlier, we had a meeting down at the church and, you know, but but it's great. So we are we are glad to be back with you all today. Yes, we are. And we're a lot more awake today. Yeah, last, last Monday, Monday and Tuesday, that was kind of rough. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody came up to me at church yesterday, and she said, you look a lot better today than you did last Tuesday. I said, oh, Thanks. okay. <laughs> so I'm sure she we was right. We meant well. I'm sure she was right, really. I, I get that. Uh, so, and, and we're almost over the jet lag. What surprised me this time was how much I really felt the jet lag. And I know we're older, we're four years older and all, but... Um, even some of the younger couples that were on the trip told me they noticed it. It does long flights. It's a long flight. Eight hours. And we had this weird thing because when we were in Israel, they stopped daylight savings time a right. week before us. So we had that. And then we, the next week, had our own. It was, right? Just it was a little, it was a lot of jumbled hours. A lot there. of jumbled hours. But it's but, good to be you know, here. And of course, yeah, the ironic thing is you go over there and, and you. You're there for days, and finally, you're you're not jet lagged anymore. Right. You're totally used to it. Yep. And then what comes next? Then you fly home. <laughs> and you start all over. <laughs> start all over again. Yep. So, but it's great. It was a wonderful trip, and uh, I hope you'll be able to be at my class on Sunday. We had a good time. Taught 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 a little bit of Hebrew. Yep. Went through that. It was such a a really amazing day yesterday. We had. Um, over 200 people in person in class, and we had, um, with our little factor that we use, um, over 70 people online. Yes. It was like crazy. Nearly 300 people yeah. combined in person and online. Which was wild. It was wild. It was so great. It was we, great. We were so glad to see that, and I think a lot of people enjoyed the beautiful day yesterday and just got up and got out and... I know some of the ladies probably got to wear their boots. I did. <laughs> and we, next week in my Sunday class, we're going to start Advent. We're, we're doing yes, Advent. We're doing I'm changing Ad the calendar. I'm starting Advent a week early. Doing Advent early. So I, I want four weeks in Advent because we're going to have a potluck one Sunday yes. before Christmas. So this will give me four Sundays in Advent. To and do, the stores have been the having Christmas, Christmas out since before You're right. Thanksgiving. So I'm actually late. You are late, actually. <laughs> so anyway, it's great to be here. Thank you all for being with us today. And as you know, we started First Thessalonians last week. Try to say that. Three times yeah. fast, but um, as you know, how Scott does it, we got to like two sentences. So well, because we went back and oh, yeah. read that whole Absolutely. long passage from Acts yes. about Paul's yep. time in Thessalonica. Yep. But if you, so that's I how just that, that if you're joining us for the first time today, you're he's yeah, going to catch you all up. I'm going to go back and just kind of summarize, and we're just going to go back. We're going to start at verse one, read through the first two and a half verses, which is about all we got, and yes. then press on from there. And we're going. We're good. Right. We're good. So. And uh, we will see that it's a really, just a really wonderful letter, heartwarming letter that Paul writes to these believers. So We love heartwarming. We do love heartwarming. He, he, he is not heartwarming in some of his letters. <laughs> I guess. So. Anyway. I guess. I'll okay. let you start us in prayer Alrighty. so we get, we get a little more than verse 2 today. Okay. Gracious Lord, we come to you in prayer today with grateful hearts, grateful for 
the ability to gather in this way. Now, we live in a time when we can gather online from distant places and come together. Um, and we ask that your spirit today would open up this letter of First Thessalonians to us. Help us to hear Paul well. Help, uh, help us to connect some with the believers in Thessalonica and what they endured and um, appreciate Paul's Paul's thankfulness for them um, because of course he was and we know that you are always thankful for for people of faith as we are thankful um, for all that you pour out upon us all this we pray in Jesus' name amen amen all righty I'm going okay, back okay Patty's going my, back uh, over to her side my nice hot tea and a little <laughs> heater <laughs> Oh, man. What are you going to do when winter actually comes? I don't know. This is winter. Hey, is, if it's 40 degrees, that's winter. That, that qualifies. Anything below 40, you're in winter time, yes, huh? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, all right. So what I want to do, let me just start there. I'm going to go back and I'm just going to tell you what happened in Thessalonica. Whereas last week we read it in Acts 17, I think it was. So let me put up... Um, this the, this map. This is the map that illustrates Paul's second missionary journey. And in this journey, he left um, Caesarea, headed north north through Syria, went back and visited the churches he had founded in southern Asia Minor, there where you see places like Iconium and Lystra, and then ended up heading west to a near Troas, crossed over um, to the European mainland in Macedonia. Macedonia is the name of um, uh, northern Greece. And then he started down this, this highway. It was a well-known highway um, it, it ran down the coastline, and all those place names that you see there are just places on this highway, including Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, and Thessalonica, and Berea, all of which in Acts 17 you encounter really, really quickly um, because he's just traveling on the road, and we Luke tells us the story. Um, just while I have the map up, I want you to see the name Achaia below Greece. Um, that's a, Paul's going to use that word, and it just refers to sort of central and southern Greece. Separate from, it's a Roman province, separate from the province of Macedonia. Um, okay, so what happens when Paul gets to Thessalonica is that he goes to the synagogue, which is his practice because he is Jewish. Remember, he never sees himself leaving Judaism. He is a Pharisee, a Jew, who embraced Jesus as Messiah. Would never have, you know, if you ask Paul, did you convert to Christianity or something, he would look at you like you had three heads. He was born a Jew, he died a Jew, what set him apart from too many of his fellow Jews was that he accepted Jesus as, as the Messiah and more as Lord and Savior of the world, but beginning at certainly as Messiah. 
So he goes into these cities and he will go first to the synagogue and preach to his fellow Jews. And what happens in Thessalonica is that it goes well for a couple of Saturdays and then it all goes off the rail. And a lot of Jews are offended um, uh, and they want to, I guess, tar and feather him or ride him out of town on the rails as we used to talk about here. And so they go to the house of a man named Jason. That's what we're told. And that must be where Paul and his companions are staying. And they demand Paul come out. So they spirit Paul out of Thessalonica at night in safety, and he heads down to Berea. Um, what's interesting about that, I think, is that Paul was not treated like a crazy man, was he? I mean, with crazy people, you don't really want to tar and feather crazy people. They're just crazy. So, but they were, I think many of the Jews heard much truth in what Paul was saying and is laying out from the scriptures and is reasoning from the scriptures, as Luke writes, about how Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And it is that ring of truth to it all, I think, that created such vehement opposition to Paul. Because when Paul gets down to Berea, where he is welcomed gladly, the Jewish objectors in Thessalonica come down the road and they're going to get Paul yet. They're going to travel all the way from Thessalonica to Berea in order to get Paul. And so then what has to happen is Paul's, um, uh, the believers in Berea put Paul, in his, uh, put Paul on, a, on a ship and send him out into the water and to go south to Athens because he's in great danger there in Berea. So all of that happens on this second missionary journey. Now, perhaps later in this second missionary journey, Paul writes this letter back to the believers in Thessalonica. And I say that because most scholars view either Galatians or 1 Thessalonians as being the oldest of Paul's letters in the New Testament. So that tells me that there are quite a few who think that he wrote it pretty soon after going to Thessalonica. And when he writes a letter like this, what does he do? He writes back to the people um, in this Christian community that he founded and for whom he is sort of senior pastor in absentia. You know, there will be leaders in the house churches. There will be a few house churches, I suspect, in Thessalonica. But but he is like their senior pastor. Now, he's not there. He's not present. But he is the one who started it all. And so when he writes back, it would be a letter weighted with a great deal of authority. Um, people would pay attention. Obviously, what happens is this piece of correspondence gets copied and gets copied again and again and again and again. In the movie, came out a couple years ago, I think it was called Paul the Apostle, maybe? Yes, that's it. Yeah. Um, we get some glimpses of how the movie makers saw the community in, of believers in Rome. And there they had a little like letter copying factory set up. 
you know, some long tables and people would sit at the tables who had the scribal skills to, to copy out this letter so that they could send it out to other communities. I mean, that's how this happened. The way that you have a New Testament like this with these letters of Paul is that a lot of people went to the work of copying these letters and passing them on, copying the letters and passing them on until they are used more and more widely around the Mediterranean um, and eventually became accepted as scripture. Um, the earliest list we have of New Testament writings is a list we found from, let's say, 150 A.D. or so. It's called the Muratonian Canon. And First Thessalonians is on that list. Wow. Yeah, so, so it was early on accepted by everybody as having been this letter of Paul. And as far as I know, um, there are no lists of sacred Christian writings, the inspired one, like the Gospels, that doesn't include First Thessalonians. So, Scott, you have a question there from Susan. Super Faulkner, duper. And hi, Susan. Hi, Susan. And she would like to ask you, would you say that Paul is a Messianic Jew, not Christian, but a Jewish believer in Jesus? You know, Messianic Jew, that's kind of a very modern term. I don't think... I would say... Only in a way, a Messianic Jew today is a Jew who wants to keep all of the Jewish customs and practices and embrace Jesus as Messiah, okay? I don't think that's really quite where Paul is. I mean, it's, I don't think it's terribly clear from his letters um, exactly how he lived his life, um, but I, 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 would, I would leave Messianic Jew to the modern world. And I would just say Paul is a Jew from his day, and he wasn't the only one, right? All of the disciples were Jews. Paul's Jewish. Um, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> For 10, 15 years, everybody in the movement's Jewish. Here, this is 50 AD, probably. It's still a very Jewish movement, but it's about to change because as the word spreads in the Gentile community, which size-wise dwarfs the Jews in the empire, well, the Gentiles soon dwarf the Jews in the movement, and it becomes this Christian thing as opposed to a Jewish thing. But that hasn't happened yet. It, it's, just a, it's just sort of a Jesus movement. But Susan, you're on the right track. He's a Jew who accepted Jesus as Messiah. Okay. Anything else over there, Patty? Nope. Anything you'd like to add? Nope. Okay. I think we're, we're doing I think we're right. good. So let's let's dive into this letter. And we got, so like Patty said, two and a half verses last time. So we'll just go back to the beginning and get started. Get the whole flow of things. You know, you can't, you can't, you really have to get the flow of things. You have to get context. You have to hold big pieces of scripture together. If you're really going to hear scripture well, there's an art to reading scripture. It can be read poorly or it can be read well. And a key part of re reading it well is to read enough of it. Um, not chunk it up into too, too tiny, where the chunks are too small. Because you, you, need, you need context in each piece of it. 
um, in addition to the context that comes from the entire library of 66 writings that make up the Bible. So, here's what he says. To the church, which is really just to the assembly, ecclesia, the word there is just an assembly, to the assemblies of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week I talked about, you see in Paul very early, his view of Jesus as more than a, how can I put this? As a man, but more than a man. To call him Lord as a Jew is is staggering because Lord is the name used when they read the Hebrew scriptures in place of the name of God, in place of the word Yahweh, the name of God, which is all over the Hebrew Bible. So you, you have you see all these little bits like this one and a hundred others in the New Testament, and you all those are what lead to the Christian understanding that God is one Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how it happened. Then he says, grace and peace to you. A nice, neat little greeting. Good way you could put that at the end of all of your emails if you would like. Grace and peace, comma. It's a good good practice. Is that what you do? Yeah, <laughs> that is what I do. <laughs> I take my own advice, Patty. <laughs> That's good. So he says, verse 2, we... I don't know that that's like a royal we. I mean, he has he has people who travel with him, right? So we always thank God for all of you, all of the Thessalonians, and continually mention you in our prayers. Now, I think that's true. I don't think there's any hyperbole in that. Um, I think he appreciates um, what the Thessalonians did for him to get him out of town and to protect him, people like Jason and others. And he says, we remember before our God and Father, this would be in his prayers, your work, the Thessalonians' work, produced by faith, right? Faith produces something. If you, if you say to yourself, I've come to faith in Jesus Christ, but you have nothing to show for it, you have to ask yourself whether that's really true. This work that the that the that the Thessalonians are doing is produced by their faith. It's the starting point. It's produced by faith. Sure, there are going to be smart people there. There's going to be accomplished people. There will be just all kinds of people there in these house churches, but. The work that they do for the gospel, for Jesus, for God, for one another, is produced first and foremost by their faith. And that is a really healthy way to see how we do what we do in church. Right? It's why, it's why a church is not a business. A church is not just any non-profit organization. A church is a family in which our work for God and for the church, the body of Christ, is produced by faith. And that labor, and here the Greek word means a labor that's that's hard. This is like hard labor. 
Because sometimes it is your labor prompted by love. I mean, you kind of wish the work of the church was always just joyful, fun, and games and stuff. But we are people who bring our brokenness into the church. It's a refuge for the broken, right? If you, if you, if you, <laughs> if you decided that what your mission was going to be was to get rid of all the sinners in church, you know how many people would be left? Zero. If you thought your job was to get rid of all the broken people in church, you're going to purify it, you're going to clean it up, and you're only going to have the people that knew how to do it and did it right. You know how many people would be in your church? Zero. As a consequence, <laughs> there are, well, heck, there's probably people in church, not the same people, but we, there are probably people in church who annoy all of us. You could probably give me a name or two of somebody in your church that you find, I don't know, a little bit of annoying. Or you're asked to do some task that you're going to do because you love Christ, you love the church, you're willing to volunteer, you're willing to help out, but you know it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be fun in games. But you do it out of love. Love for whom? Love for God. Love for Jesus. Love for one another. Always, when that word love is there, you can always think of the, this is simple, but it's, you know, so I always come back to it, the vertical and the horizontal, like a cross. The vertical being our love of God and the horizontal being our love of others. And love is always in the New Testament an action word. It's not a sentiment. See, like it, like here. Your, your labor prompted by love, that work that you did, produced by faith, prompted by love, that's the explanation for why people in the course of Christianity have undertaken tasks that they would not otherwise do. The classic example for me comes from the early centuries of the church when the Christians would sit at the bedside of people who were ill and care for them, strangers. And that had never happened before. If you were sick, you better have family members to sit at your side who cared about you or you weren't going to have anybody there. Nobody sat at the bedside because they didn't understand all the functioning of germs and disease, but they knew if you hung out with a sick person long enough, you might get sick yourself. So um, I remember the story of one Christian, I think his name was Eutychus, maybe, who lived in a town, pretty big town. A plague came. Um, he and the Christians sent up like 300 beds in the town square to take care of people who were falling ill from the plague and um, the plague then disappeared and but Eutychus had died you know he knew he knew what he was doing how why did he do that it was prompted by love prompted by love you know that's it prompted by love 
So you're so 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 Paul is always remembering the Thessalonians who are doing work produced by faith, whose labor, remember they rescued him. They rescued him from their neighbors who were out to get Paul. What prompted them to step up and insert themselves into that situation? At risk, surely at risk to themselves. Jason was at risk in, in doing this. Why did they do that? Prompted by love. And your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Why would Eutychus, if I have the guy's name right, lead this effort to care for people he didn't know in a time of a terrible plague? Knowing full well he might get sick, probably would get sick. Um, But it's what Jesus he, would have wanted him to do. It's what Jesus wanted him to do. And he did it because he understood where he was going. That's what that word hope there is about there. Your endurance, your willingness to stick with things and push things through, inspired by hope. Well, what does that mean, inspired by hope? Hope of what? The sure knowledge that death is not our end. That, as Paul writes elsewhere, we will be with Christ, and that one day we will be resurrected just as Jesus was resurrected. That is the, that's the ground of our hope. That, that is what makes us see difficulties in death differently. It should. It, you know, I can't speak for anybody but myself, but it should. How does that song go? Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and his faithfulness? Yes. Yeah. Because it's Jesus' faithfulness that has given us this hope. That has made us right with God. Has given us this, this sure confidence. That's, you know, I once taught a series on faith, hope, and love. And I used synonyms. For faith, it was trust. For love, it was... Oh, <laughs> I can't even remember. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> for hope, it was confidence. Okay? This was a long time ago, so you can excuse me. So for love, it was confidence. The sure confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you trust Jesus? Do you place your confidence in Jesus? Is he the source of the confident way that you approach life and even the end of life? And for the Thessalonians, with the violence on display there in their own town amongst their own Jewish community, that would have been, a, I think, a live thought, a real thought among them. So then he says, verse 4, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, always telling them, reminding them that they are loved by God. You know, the brothers and sisters in Christ are loved by God. Each person in the body of Christ is loved by God. All persons, whether they are part of the body of Christ, they are loved by God. This is something I think Christians sometimes forget. It's like they can't handle the idea that God loves Muslims or Buddhists. And they forget such a simple verse that carries um, this, for God so loved, 
whom God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Not everybody responds to that love. Not everybody returns that love. Not everybody wants that love. But this whole project of redeeming humankind is about God's love. It's why he comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a giant family. I'm going to give you a land. And all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you. All, 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 all. I, I keep hitting it time and again because no matter what part of the Bible I dive into, there it is. This, this project by God to rescue humankind, all of us. Now, some of us whoa, don't want to be rescued. Fine. Others might not find, <laughs> might not, not agree to be rescued until the other side of the grave. Fine. Well, they've lost a lifetime of goodness, of living in, in the grace of God. But here he's speaking specifically to the believers, and he says, Brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Let's, um, I was asked the other day if I've watched any of a series called The Chosen, and I haven't. And I'm not sure who the title refers to. If it only refers to Jesus, well, that's incomplete. Because you see, Paul was chosen by God. Peter was chosen by God. Mary Blankdelen was chosen by God. You and I are chosen by God. We've been given a mission. Like the Blues Brothers. <laughs> We've been given a mission from God. And what is that mission? To spread the gospel. Spread the gospel, right? To make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach them. Teach them. And to be witnesses to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. No person is without purpose. That's a sad thing. You hear people talking, you know, in, and they say, I, I'm lost. I don't have a purpose. I'm just, and I want to go up and I want to grab them. And I say, oh my, my, you have a purpose. God loves you and God has given you a purpose. Will you just will you just come to God and learn learn and and learn what your purpose is so that you can live out that purpose. Because in that they'll find fulfillment. I I believe that. And um You know, I was just thinking when you said that? that, um I wonder if that had something to do with the unbelievable popularity of Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life. You know, that people who were looking for a purpose. Yeah. See, I don't know. That up. I'm familiar with the book. I have not read the book. I don't know if the purpose he speaks of is what I just spoke of, then absolutely. I'm going to assume it does because um, Rick Warren's a pretty straightforward, orthodox, Baptist preacher. Um, but it is, we are all part of this project. And God has chosen us to be part of this project. Um, and 
in that we can find purpose, we can find fulfillment um, and satisfaction. We just have to we just have to keep shoving away a lot of the crap that the world wants to pour into us, right? Um, we were talking in a in a meeting today about upcoming sermon series and. Um, I remembered a quote that, of course, Arthur knew better than I did um, from uh, Yeats, the poet Yeats, about, you know, it, it goes, there's a little piece of it that sticks in my mind always. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. And it was written after the uh, First World War. And I think for a lot of people now, they feel like that, like the center of their life, of our community, of our country. It's not holding. It's not holding. It's falling apart. We're all falling apart. Well, if you feel that way, you have to come to the proper center of your life. The proper center of your life is Jesus Christ. If, if, if he stands at the center of your life, if he is the one in whom you find your identity, not where you came from, or the accent you speak with, or the color of your skin, or your sexual identity, whatever the things are, if you find your identity in Christ first, and put him at the center of your life, you're going to find that a lot of that stuff the world wants to throw at you just kind of falls away. Just kind of falls away. You have to... You, it's, it's, it's not magic. You know, Paul writes what? In, book, in his letter of the Romans, he says, you know, we have to be renewed by the transforming of our minds so that we will know what, what pleases God. So there is work to be done. Paul says, work out your own salvation. He says to the Ephesians, you know, I wish I could give you meat, but all I can give you now is milk. So come on, let's do some growing. Let's do some growing. I mean, that has to happen. But it's only going to really happen if you, if you soon understand that the center of your life has to be Jesus. You can have a job. Most people have, I mean, I know what I do. But most people have jobs just because you work at EDS. Is there still an EDS? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if you work at EDS or some other company, work at Salesforce. That's where one of our sons works. If you work at Salesforce, you can still have Jesus at the center of your life. And you can strive every day at Salesforce to reflect Jesus in kindness, humility, helping others, helping the work there to be meaningful for people and moral. See? There we go. Susan answered your who the chosen were there, Scott. You ain't going to look at you. It's describing the apostles that Jesus picked out and perhaps and maybe even all who became followers. Okay, very good. Yeah, that that, that, that would be better. So, right, so Jesus chooses um, disciples there are disciples and they follow Jesus and they're chosen for the work as you and I are chosen for the work. Um, we need to come to see ourselves standing alongside the disciples and the apostles. Because if you read the book of Acts, that's what's happening in all the early chapters. 
the Christian community is growing. And it's growing because everybody is plunging in. And when the apostles delegate sort of some of the administrative and housekeeping work to seven men, it's just so that the community can grow and things can move forward. And that's what we do today. So, okay, enough of that, Scott. So, verse four. <laughs> I could go on a long time about some of this stuff. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you. Not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. The gospel. Let's talk about that word for a minute. Gospel. Um, the underlying Greek word I'm going to pronounce, Lauren might be able to do it better than I can, but it's uh, it's evangelion, right? I put the V in it because it's 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 ties to the word. It's for the word from which we get the word evangelism, the evangelion. It is a word of proclamation, and it was not a church word. If Caesar had a new son, the evangelion was. The word used to describe the proclamation that went out to the provinces that an heir had been born. So it wasn't a church word. But in the context of the Christians, it is a word of proclamation about what? Hmm. I've heard it summarized in three words before. Jesus is Lord. Others will take a little bit, put a little bit more words in it, you know, that it, that, that, um, because of Jesus' faithfulness all the way to death, even death on a cross, we have been reconciled with God. And thus Jesus is Lord. But it is this compact proclamation about what God has done in Jesus. It's not about his teachings. It's not about his miracles. It is about what God has done in Jesus to reconcile humanity to God. And the proclamation carries with it an invitation to participate and a, and, and, a, and, a, and a challenge to join in and a summons to do the work. That's what's carried in this word. Now, you, you find the word in your typical in English translations of our time. You find the word translated two ways. One is gospel. The other one is good news. Same thing. No difference. Same underlying Greek word. In the old King James Bible, it was the um, glad tidings. The angels show up, right? So they are the bringers of the message. That's what the word angel means. Angel means messenger. They are the bringers of the message, the bringers of the proclamation, the bringers of the glad tidings, the bringers of the good news, the, breeding, the bringers of the gospel. Paul brought the gospel, brought the news. He was like a town herald in that way. He brought, he brought the good news to Thessalonica. And they not just heard it, they embraced it. Because words can go in one ear and out the other. Printed words can go in one eye and out the other. But they didn't just hear the words. They didn't just speak some 
empty words of themselves. They responded with power. So much so, they put themselves at risk in order to rescue Paul from the objectors, from the opponents. And how does this happen? How could Paul, this Pharisee, come to Thessalonica and convince anyone that Yeshua from Nazareth was, who was crucified, was actually the Messiah and more? How could that be? How could anybody, how could anybody come to embrace that in such a way that they put themselves at risk to protect that message? Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, you see. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence in our lives. The Holy Spirit is the one who works with us um, in a, I think, a fairly mysterious way, really, works with us to, to, to help to bring us to faith and, and works with us as we are um, strive to be increasingly Christ-like, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. There's no place, there's no place for halfway Christians. This is something we, we've been talking to St. Andrew about for, I don't know, years. 12 years now, yeah. right? We've been, people, at first people didn't know what we meant by the word Christianish, but they got used to it, right? That Christianish were people who might check it off on a form, but that's about it. That we're called to be more than that. We're called to be more than people who show up on Christmas and Easter because that's what everybody does. We're called to be passionate servants of Christ, fully, fully committed. Fully committed. With, and, and holding our beliefs with, with ever deeper conviction. Um, there's a man named Michael Novak who had just a wonderful way of talking about our convictions. He says there are really three different kinds of convictions that a person can hold, beliefs that they can hold. He said, there are those that you show to everybody else. Right? They're all out there in public. Everybody can see it. You say it. You say the words. You sing the songs, whatever. Everybody can see what you do. Then he said, well, but then there are those convictions that you know are really in your heart when you're all by yourself in a dark room. You know, that's what you know really is. And you confront yourself, that's what you know is like really there. And you're maybe even afraid of letting people get a peek at some of that. And he says, but that it's the third kind of convictions. The ones that are that matter the most, he said, those are the ones that are so deeply held that they will only be seen by how you live. You hardly could even articulate themselves, but they come out in all kinds of tiny ways every day. And I think that's, you know, I, I think he... I think that's a real helpful way to think about and about it. And these Thessalonians, 
they are holding this with deep conviction. And they've even demonstrated right off the bat they had the opportunity. What would you do? The opponents, they want Paul. They're headed over to Jason's house. What are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to turn your backs? You're going to go home where it's nice and safe and look after, look, look after your kids? Or are you going to go and rescue Paul and take what comes with it? And they chose, they chose the latter. It's like in Acts 4, after Peter um, and John have been arrested, the believers are gathered in the temple courtyards where they were meeting and they're praying. They're not praying. It's explicit in the book of Acts. They're not praying for safety, as I think many of us were. They're not praying for security. They're not praying that the authorities would leave them alone. What they are praying for is boldness because they don't want their fears, well-founded fears, to scare them away from proclaiming the gospel. So, Paul goes on in verse 5. Anybody got anything there? <laughs> I should stop and check. Patty had to get up and leave for a moment, but I should stop and check the business. Okay, let's go on then. Second part of verse 5. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Why does Paul do this work? He ends up walking like estimated like 10,000 miles and he's beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and numerous times. Why does he do that? Because he couldn't find anything better to do? No, he does it because he loves these people. Paul's labor is produced by love, prompted by love, born out of love. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Now look at verse 6. He's always bringing it up a bit short, but this is the truth. This is one of those verses that is like real life. I love that Arthur lately in his sermons is talking so much about reality about real life because people in our time are not confronted enough with how well what they say actually matches up with reality. Okay? So, he says, verse 6, he says, you, the Thessalonians, became imitators of us, Paul and the others, and I think he probably particularly means himself, and of the Lord. Imitators of Paul. That's just real world, right? In that, I think almost everybody who is a Christian helped, learned a lot about what it means to be a committed Christian by modeling themselves on a committed a Christian that they knew and observed and worshiped with. I know it was true for me. I modeled myself on Robert Hasley, Charles Stokes, um, Leighton Farrell, Sam and Charlene Farber. You know, <laughs> and I could make, I could actually make a very long list of people I think that I have, that I strive to imitate in, in, 
ways because I, I, I saw in them a deep faith and a living out of that faith. Um, and so Paul's a realist. That's how people learn. He is, it isn't the only place he says this. He, one place else, I can't quote the place. He says, imitate me as I imitate the Lord. Real world. I'll, I've, I've said this many times, but I remember turned Charles Barkley one time, years and years ago, when he was a much younger man and not as wise as um, Sir Charles is today, I think. And somebody, he had been acting out, acting up, and somebody said, well, Charles, now you're a role model for, for lots of kids. And he said, I'm nobody's role model. And at the time, I thought to myself, well, Charles, you don't get to choose that, do you? You don't get to choose whether people see you as a role model. That decision is made by the, by, by the uh, 12-year-old who's looking around for a role model. Um, one terrible thing that's happened in too many households in America, too many homes, that, that, that there's no father. Where do the kids find role models? There are a lot of bad places to find role models in this world today. Not enough good ones. But Paul's just being re realistic. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Because that's, that's the way you learn. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You know, if you look look at how Paul is writing this, I think a lot of times today we would not be using um, the words Holy Spirit there. We would, If we were writing this, we would just say God. And we, we I think we are ne very neglectful of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. God present with us. The Holy Spirit is the one who encourages us and comforts us and strengthens us. The Holy Spirit is the one Jesus said would follow after he was crucified and risen. Remember in John 15, 16, 17, he says, you can't come with me. Another one will come after me, the comforter, counselor, advocate. But that's the Holy Spirit. Um, and I think I think one of the things I like about Paul's letters is that he is more explicit about the work of the Holy Spirit um, in us all. For we all Christians, the Holy Spirit dwells in all believers. You welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Does that mean the suffering is fun? No, it's how you endure it. Go back to the word endurance above. Your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't, it, it isn't lessening the truth of the severe suffering. But the question is, how do you endure it? And can you in Christ... with the Holy Spirit, find joy 
even in times of suffering. I, I, I think that people of, uh, who have genuinely put their faith in Christ are able to call on the Spirit in very deeply surprising ways. You know, there's a movie coming out, if it isn't already out, telling the story of Emmett Till, the young black teenager who went to spend, from Chicago, who went to spend a summer in Mississippi and whistled at a white woman and was stolen out of his aunt and uncle's home in the middle of the night, taken away, tortured, and killed. His body was found at the bottom of a pond wrapped in barbed wire, almost unrecognizable, weighted down by a big fan, big electric fan. His mother, um, Emmett's mom, insisted that the coffin be left open at the funeral so people could see what had been done to him. Um, the men, they, everybody knew who did it. They were arrested. Um, there was a, a trial. Um, jury was out for an hour and of course acquitted them all. Reflecting back on it, his mom said the most amazing thing. That she just couldn't, she just couldn't harbor hate in her heart. That isn't what Jesus wanted her to do. She knew that that hate would ruin her. And she knew that Jesus wanted more for her, something else for her. And she said, she said to her, her interviewer was a guy you may probably never heard of named Studs Turkle. And she told Studs that she said, I could raise the children of those killers and love those children as if they were my own. And of course, Studs wonders, why, why, how could that be? How is that possible? Her response, ah, all things are possible in Christ. You see? So, so we Christians have to somehow see suffering differently. I, I do want to just add Endure that movie is rated off the charts really? as excellent. Good. Yeah, 98% it's a, such a powerful tomatoes. story. You know, I used that in the first sermon I ever preached at St. Angela, like back in 2003. Yes. I used that story. I remember that. The interview with... with um, and the movie is just called Till, T-I-L-L. So... Um, highly, highly reviewed by both critics and people who've seen be, the movie. It'll be interesting to see. I hope... I, 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 ho I think her name's Maybe. Yeah, like M-A-B-I-E. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope she is depicted in the ways that I have read about her. So, verse 7. So, he, he said, back to verse 6. You became imitators of us. You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model yourselves to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That's Greece. Northern Greece, Central Greece, Southern Greece. Northern Greece, Macedonia, Achaia, or Achaia, however you say it, is Central and Southern Turkey. So, the imitators become the model. 
That's how it works. That's how it works. So you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And so people will sometimes say, oh, there's so much hyperbole here, Paul. I don't know. I think the story told in Acts 17, not that Acts has been written, but the story of what happens in Thessalonica with Jason and Jason's house and Paul being run out of town and the Thessalonians protecting him. And then I, I think that is um, the Thessalonian believers protecting him. I think that story would travel like wildfire among, among the believers. What did Andy put? What? Andy, I guess you've heard of Studs Terkel. Studs Terkel was a, was a writer um, back in the old days, you know. Yeah. he, he Studs Terkel liked to write books where he was going around interviewing people, interviewing workers and that kind of stuff. And he did an interview with, I think her name is Mamie. Um, maybe Till, but... Mamie. 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 Okay. That's who Studs Turkle is. First name Studs, last name Turkle. <laughs> so now in verse 7, so you became a model for all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Now, maybe there's a little hyperbole there, but who cares? I don't care. He is so thankful for them. And he knows that there is great power in what they have done and in their embrace of the gospel. Remember, what does Jesus, in the book of Acts, what does Jesus tell the disciples before he's going to return to the Father? He says, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That witnessing is not simply what you say because people are much more influenced by what you do. Words are fine, but people are much more influenced by what you actually do. What can they see you do? Do you do your, do your actions? Does your life match up to your words? And so... He, he's lifting them up and encouraging them. And I, like I said, I, I think the story, go back and read Acts 17, I think the story of what happens at Thessalonica probably uh, traveled pretty fast. I mean, it's, isn't it surprising that the name Jason is kept? So what happens in like 50 AD, Luke is not writing until 35 years later, but the name of Jason survives. That 35 years. So the story of what happens in Thessalonica in an oral culture like this one becomes very complete, becomes very standardized, and is retold carefully. And even the name of Jason survives until Luke, you know, writes it down. Maybe it was written down elsewhere first. I have no way of knowing that. He says, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves, these people all over, report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols. 
to serve the living and true God. There is only one. There was only one God then. There is only one God now. That's the truth. That's the reality. A lot of people don't like it when Christians claim this. But the only way we could not claim this is to not be Christian. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to have to claim this. And it is true. It is reality. It is the way things really are. The living and true God is the God who came to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and raised Jesus from the dead. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for what? For his son from heaven. Second coming. You know, the second coming is a doctrine that's just sprinkled all, all over the New Testament. Not in the Gospels, yes, when Jesus talks about us being ready. But in Paul's letter, sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little shorter but awaiting the return of Jesus. So let me, this is a chance for me to use a slide I have here. Boom, that, that, that one right there, that is part of the dig in Thessalonica, where in the city center, they've been doing digging of the ruins there from 2,000 years ago. So this is, this is the chart, right? So you see the coming of Christ, the vertical line, okay? I think that's pretty clear. We live in the last days. Paul was living in the last days when he wrote this. We still live in the last days. Why? Because the last days will not come to an end until what? The second coming of Christ. So we live in the time when the age to come, the age of salvation, new creation, new covenant, new temple is with us. And the, age, the present age, as the Jews would call it, of sin, death, and the enemies of God is still with us. And we live in the tension between the two. So Paul says, they tell, in the second part of verse 9, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That's the linchpin. That's the proof. We're about to enter into Advent and Christmas. How do we know that an angel came to Mary and told her that she would be pregnant and she becomes pregnant by the overshadowing of, of the Holy Spirit? How do, how do, why do we lend any truth to that story? Because Jesus was resurrected. That's the linchpin. That's what undergirds everything. And to wait for, verse 10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, <coughs> who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, what is that coming wrath? The coming wrath is, is, the, is, is the day of judgment. There is so much in this world that needs to be judged. There is so much wrong, so much murder and strife and violence and death. I saw in 
the Wall Street Journal this morning a story about a Russian soldier who had, I guess, tried to go over to the Ukrainian side, was found out, and was executed by getting smashed with a sledgehammer. There is so much in this world that should make God wrathful and should make God angry. Do we really... Do we really think that a moral God would simply say, oh, well, never mind. It's all right. Just just like, no, no, it's all right. Oh, well, never mind. Sorry. Sorry I went through all that, but eh, never mind. No, that that is it. It doesn't satisfy my heart. I mean, you know, so it's, it's, this, it's this day of reckoning. And the way that you... come out on the right side on this day of reckoning is by being reconciled with God, which happens through Jesus. A lot of different ways to put it, but but um, that's, a, that's a simple way. So what does Jesus do? He rescues us from the coming wrath by making us right with God so that our sins are forgiven so that the darkness in us is washed away. But, oh yes, there's, there's, there's a lot that to be forgiven, that is for sure. Okay? All right. So now that we've talked about Studs Terkel, The Chosen, and Emmett Till, um, do you have anything you want to add right now, Patty? No, I don't, Scotty. Okay, then I think we're going to end a little bit early today because we are at the end of the first chapter. So we'll just, rather than get a couple of sentences into the next one, um, we'll we'll just we'll just end a bit early today. That makes sense to me. Alrighty. So if anybody has anything, go ahead and type it in because we are we are a little bit about eight minutes early. <laughs> Eight minutes. Oops. All righty. So I've made my way around here, but now I have to, Oh, there I am. Um, and I did just want to um, remind folks that this Wednesday is another Second Act Ministry event. It's at St. Andrew at 2 p.m. It's a coffee and dessert event, and it is being presented by Beacon of Light. Um, we have a, a special speaker, um, doctor who came and spoke actually last month. Dr. Harold Duncan. Dr. Harold Duncan. He was excellent. I went. He really, really was. And um, it's it's kind of like an introduction to right. mental health. Um, so you won't get every question you have answered, but he he does go over an enormous amount of information in, in an hour or so. And um, I really highly recommend it. Um, we just did it at two times. We did it one time in the evening and one time during so the day. So this is a repeat, not a part yes, two. Yes, this is a repeat of what was held last month. And we had about 50 people that, that came. We had a really good turnout. And again, it will be this Wednesday at 2 o'clock, Piero Hall. And we're looking for another good turnout. There, there really is um, a lot of interest in mental health mm. issues. It, it was one of the... Um, one of the very top subjects when we first uh, started meeting and going over various things for the Second Act ministry, 
this this was truly like right at the top of the list as far as subjects that people um, wanted us to have guest speakers for. So I hope if you can that you'll be there. Um, it should be really informative. Very good. Yep. I'll be there, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I guess that's you it. You want to say a closing prayer? I then, sure dear? will. I okay. sure will. Thank you so much. Thanks we for had being a really good, a good crowd here with us today. So uh, that was wonderful on this cold and rainy day. It's a good day to stay inside and indeed and go over. And next week we'll go on to First Thessalonians chapter two. Chapter two. Can you believe it? We're speeding right through there today. <laughs> All righty. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We do thank you for the rain, Lord. We do. We know that in Texas, we always, always should be appreciative for rain. We pray, God, that your spirit will be with us today, Lord, as we close out on this Bible study. We pray, God, for every person that is here and for our friends, our family, Lord. We pray that you would help to keep us safe and healthy, Lord. We pray for our world we pray for our country. There's just so much going on right now, and there's just a lot of unrest. And we pray for your peace, God, that passes all understanding. Please bring us back together again next Monday, Lord, where we can continue on in the study of Thessalonians. We love you, Lord, and we are very grateful. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Adios, everybody. And don't forget tomorrow. We're downstairs also in Piro Hall Piro at Hall. 12 o'clock. And we'll get to talk about the resurrection tomorrow. We're coming to our really key really part. Really good, good thing. Even if you haven't come before, each yeah, class just come is down. always kind of... Got to talk about the resurrection. All righty. And we'll be there. We'll be there. <laughs> Piro Hall. Noon. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Have a good day.